The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. America's market economy is extraordinarily efficient, delivering thousands of different goods and services to people across the country. Normally, we never have to worry about stores being out of the things we want or need. And if they are, shelves are quickly resupplied. Yet since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen shortages of numerous items, beginning with toilet paper and hand sanitizer, and now we have shortages of cars and furniture and other, and other items on months-long back orders. The prices of many things that are still available are rising, with inflation at its highest level in decades. And since the summer of 2021, a small armada of freighters have been waiting off the coast of California to dock at the ports in Los Angeles. Many politicians and experts claim now that America's uh, supply chains are broken and the government need to step in to oversee this mess. It, December 2021 marks the 30th anniversary of the end of the Soviet Union. Is America's economy now destined to resemble that of the former Soviet Union with empty store shelves and people lined up for blocks for goods whenever something appeared? Joining me on eConversations today to help make sense of our current shortage economy and transportation traffic jam, jams is Peter Earle. He's an economist with the American Institute for Economic Research. Mr. Earle studied engineering at the U.S. Military Academy and has earned graduate degrees in economics and finance. And he worked in finance for 20 years before joining AIER. Welcome back to the show, Pete. Thank you. So let's let's get started here by uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about what we know about like the, both the, the shortages and some of the price spikes and uh, and now the the transportation uh, backlog. So you've written about all these things for for AIER. So tell us about some of the, the the details of what's going on here. So it really all starts, uh, and this is a, this is a point I find myself making regularly: is people are attributing many of the problems we see today to a virus. Um, that's only to a very, very small extent the case. Most of the problems we're seeing today started with the government response to the crisis, which is to say lockdowns, stay-at-home orders, uh, things like uh, uh, maximum capacity, you know, owing to social distancing, max maximum capacities in workplaces, uh, and then some other effects, such as the massive both fiscal and monetary policy response mm -hmm. to, uh, to the pandemic. But, the virus didn't do any of that. Now, you could say initially, uh, there was something of a demand shock. When, when, when people originally began hearing about COVID and they got worried about it, some people did stay home. Uh, they opted to work from home. They didn't buy as much, but that was very short-lived. What you have, uh, what you had developing more in later March and April of 2020 was that uh, with 300 million people staying home, uh, 300 million Americans out of say 340, I believe, million Americans were under some form of lockdown or stay-at-home order. Um, people, nobody was working, but you had this tremendous uh, supply, um, tremendous uh, supply shock, positive. So mm -hmm. that was fed by the first stimulus payments, and that's how this all began. 
So, because initially, for a very short time, the savings rate jumped uh, to, to all-time record levels, but then quickly people started spending. But you know, a part of the story is not just that they started spending, but that they were buying some different things than they had been before. And, and that's a really important part of, of this story. Changing spending patterns are, are gonna have real impacts on the economy, right? Right, so what you have is you have many, many people at home. Uh, and so uh, some examples of the things that they purchased. I mean, first of all, of course, um, um, ordering food became huge, uh, but also things like electronics. A lot of people wanted to play, say, video games, that sort of thing, or they decided to buy a console. Uh, exercise equipment was a particularly uh, popular area because people, a popular area of consumption because people didn't want to go outside or their gyms were closed or they just sort of made resolutions to be more healthy in the wake of this, um, uh, of, of what was a, well, at one point a health crisis, essentially. Uh, and also a lot of DIY, do-it-yourself projects, or a lot of orders for hardware or lumber and that sort of thing. Uh, because with time on their hands, a lot of uh, Americans said, this is the time that I can you know, fix the banister or build that uh, shelf or whatever it is I need to do around the house. And lumber was one of the areas where we, we saw like completely unprecedented uh, uh, price in increases for yep. lumber. This is com completely unlike anything. There's a, normally a pretty sleepy market. And, and then like yeah, so lumber prices went crazy as, you, as you've documented, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, as, as you mentioned in the opening, I spent 20 years as a trader and the lumber pits, lumber trading was always extremely sleepy. I mean, I mean, in the pits and generally the, the types of firms and the types of uh, uh, participants in the lumber market are almost completely commercial, right? So you might have like Home Depot and some home builders in there, but very few speculators, that sort of thing, maybe some, some, some timber companies. But when you had mills shut down in April and May and no one buying anything, uh, lumber, which uh, which which is priced in in so the price units are thousand board feet. So lumber went from 400 per thousand board feet down to like 260, 270 per thousand board feet. That was the initial people staying away from the Home Depots and the Lowe's mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And then within the next six to eight months, uh, eight to ten months, uh, lumber's price went from 300 dollars per thousand board feet to over 1700 which is a record, it's an all-time record. And, uh, and that, that's, that's on the heels of uh, an explosion of do-it-yourself projects, uh, home, home applica mortgage applications leading to more home building and all that fed by people being at home and also being, uh, being, being, being sort of uh, led to consume by uh, receiving stimulus payments. And I think one of, my great, one of my favorite anecdotes from that time period is that we went from uh, a, a, a market, you know, the, the, the lumber futures market, which was very sleepy and quiet. It sort of traded between 200 and 500 um, um, uh, dollars per thousand board feet for, for decades um, to a point where the action was so hot in the, uh, in the pits and, and in electronic trading that a cryptocurrency exchange actually opened their own lumber trading facility uh, to accommodate the overflow of value, which is, I mean, that's just, it's incredible to consider. And, and then we've seen uh, other changes in buying patterns. And you talk about things like the, the people wanting to buy exercise equipment or, or uh, consumer electronics, mm -hmm. as opposed sure. to like entertainment or, or dining out at restaurants. Well, 
those uh, those those things they're wanting to buy are, are going to be uh, generally imported as well, or, or at least assembled in the United States with a lot of things that have to get imported to the United States for, for assembly. And that's going to uh, have impacts on our transportation system, right? Sure. I mean, the, the, with, the, uh, with the gaming consoles and with the uh, uh, smart TVs and the, uh, and the exercise equipment, all of those uh, generally are manufactured abroad. Uh, but there's two things. There's, there's the transportation component and there's also the electronics component. They almost all use semiconductor chips. And we had uh, a huge semiconductor uh, shortage uh, that's now still affecting uh, cars and trucks. And of course, we've had tons and tons of goods uh, in our, uh, uh, in our, in our uh, uh, highly globalized economy that have been, uh, had to be transported here. And that, that is, is one of the reasons why we have this, uh, this tremendous, it's, it's, there's a number of, of factors, but that's one of the reasons why we have this tremendous sort of uh, informal uh, commercial flotilla off of so many ports today is that the, the, the imports have been just coming in an avalanche. Yeah, to meet the, the demand, not just as, as the components of demand shifted, that's going to shift uh, to, think, to other things. And, you know, right. whether it be hand sanitizer or, you know, uh, gaming consoles or, or exercise equipment, there is a, a reality about production. And like the, the, uh, we talk about in economics that production takes time and it involves capital goods. And so th there are what we call capacity constraints in, in every industry sure. out, out there in, in the economy. Talk, talk to us a little bit about this. Yeah, so, so in order to expand capacity, uh, you know, you need to invest in capital. There need to be either more factories or um, uh, more raw materials brought into play and all this stuff. This is the very furthest part of the terms of the of the term structure of production. It also means more time to produce things. So you can't just, uh, so what we can't do is we can't just sort of whip up, uh, you know, a, a, a multiplicative or exponential increase or whatever it is, whatever the mathematical rule is in production overnight. Mm -hmm. You know, not only that, but one of the reasons why we enjoy uh, the low cost for goods and the rapid availability of goods um, is because companies have been, been very good at uh, just-in-time processing or just-in-time production, which means they don't make things and then let them sit in a warehouse or on a shelf for a while. They make things sort of as orders come in. And the benefit of that is that it, uh, the benefit of that sort of system is that it allows for lower prices and more responsiveness and companies can put more effort into making those processes more efficient, uh, becoming more productive. But the, the downside is that when there's a huge, and I mean, a lot of this is based on statistics, when there's a second or third or whatever it is, data deviation increase in orders, it means they very easily get behind. Right. And it's not easy to ramp up those, product, the, those, those processes and to, to increase uh, that productive capacity. The other thing is that initially many firms, even with that sort of rush of uh, orders and that sort of high demand, they're not going to do that because they don't know if it's going to last. Right. You know, they can't see the future. Their economic calculations tend, it tends to be pretty good, but they don't know if this is a one or two day blip or a one month blip or, you know, a permanent sort of paradigm shift. So it's very difficult for them to keep on top of it with, um, with so much uncertainty and with the, with the, um, with the cost associated with, with, with um, uh, expanding their productive capacity being so high. And the same thing that we say about capacity constraints, not only does it affect the production of computers or, or exercise equipment, it, the, they also exist in the transportation sector. I mean, there, there's, there's only so many freighters, there's only so many 
births at, at ports. And again, those things can't be created, you know, nobody can wave a magic wand and make new ones appear overnight, right? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a whole cocktail of issues um, with regard to ports. Um, the first is that uh, uh, US ports, because they're dominated by collective bargaining uh, agreements, um, they're not the same as ports you might find in China or in Denmark or places like that. Um, our ports tend to run uh, from, I believe, 5 a.m. to about 9 p.m. And uh, many of the, 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 the unions have been successful in sort of uh, keeping away some of the labor-saving technologies that are employed elsewhere. It's also the fact, as we mentioned before in other uh, situations, in, in, in the other um, context, that, that ports are extremely capital-intensive. They cost a lot of money to upgrade all those cranes and things like that. Um, in some cases, they would need to, to dredge uh, certain ports and make them deeper, uh, mm -hmm. which is, I mean, that's years. Uh, that's, a, that's a project that could take years to do. And also the other parts. I mean, uh, uh, containers, for example. Containers, uh, I didn't know this, of course, before I started doing research, but containers are, well, they're a seemingly very simple uh, undertaking, really just a large uh, corrugated steel or aluminum box. Uh, but, uh, but it's a wonder of the modern economy because they are made today to go from ship to truck, to rail, to barge. And, and for that reason, they're standardized and they allow for companies to plan capacity and to plan how much they can ship. But the other thing is that they are very much, uh, I'm not gonna say controlled, but uh, there's only a handful of firms that dominate that market. So there are sort of some quasi oligopic uh, sort of uh, forces there. And um, generally speaking, those firms tend to produce them at a, at a rate roughly equal to the amount that in which the global population of containers retire. But in this case, we have not just had, but have even as we do this show, we've had you know untold containers waiting on ships, waiting at ports. And so a lot of firms that are shipping things have actually opted not to offload uh, things as quickly as they might have because possession is nine tenths of the law. Mm. They're worried that if they pull stuff out too early, that container might be picked up by another firm. So. Um, the, 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 the list of sort of domino effects uh, from lockdowns a year and a half ago is we're on the maybe fourth or fifth uh, uh, order effects now. Yeah, and it's, it's important to, to know that, I mean, these are real economic challenges. I mean, to try to increase uh, production, to try to increase uh, transportation of, of goods in a short period of time is a real challenge. And like you know, that there are sure. things that are real challenges and th those are unavoidable. And then there are some things like we, we do to shoot ourselves in the foot, which maybe we could avoid, but there are some, some serious uh, challenges here with the capacity constraints. And as you've mentioned about like, you know, not knowing if a, a, a increase in demand is going to be permanent. There's also an issue when you choose how much capacity to have, you. Uh, I, I think you know you, you, you used in one of your articles this thing. You don't build a, a, a church based on the attendance you're going to have on Easter and, and Christmas. You have to take, take into account not right. just the record levels, but you're, you're really taking into account how much you're going to what attendance is going to be on a normal day, right? Right, right, and that's why I use the example. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but my guess would be that um, in the in the in the operations management or industrial engineering. They probably say, you know, we'll take the 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 the, the most uh, you know, the most voluminous Christmas or whatever we've ever had, and add like 1.5 percent or something like that, or, or one and a half times. But all of those sort of constraints 
which are again how they you know i think of them as that's the way that we that we are allowed or able to afford uh lower prices is by that sort of real streamlining of efficiency um but all of these numbers in so many ways in terms of uh ship capacity in terms of offloading capacity in terms of the number of containers in terms of the pallets that go into the containers have all been blown out of the water yeah so uh what i mean the good news is that the price system works Right. Uh, uh, the bad news is that uh, oftentimes governments or regulators try to arrest it uh, or, or try to mitigate it, which is uh, the worst thing that could happen, but it's a, a frequent response. But uh, when, when we have this challenge and, and people want more of a good than can possibly be produced, at, at least in, in the near term, you're, they're going to have to have what, one of two things happen. Either the economics tells us either the price has to go up or there are going to be shortages. Uh, people who are, are not right. going to be able to, to buy what they want to have. And, and that's sort of what we're, we're experiencing now. And it's, uh, it's this response to is something unavoidable in, the, in a way, right? Sure, yeah. I, I mean, so you can have, so there's going to be rationing when, there's, when, when these types of things happen. The question is, do you want rationing by the decentralized price system that brings together information from all over the place, uh, including, including most importantly, local information, or do you want rationing by fiat, by command? And, uh, and, and you know, I, I mentioned before what happened in, um, in, in, in lumber, but uh, when lumber hit uh, almost $1,700 per thousand board feet, you had a, a predictable reaction. Now, nobody can tell what price this will happen, but mm -hmm. the, the price turned out to be at about $1,700 per board feet, where people who were bidding on projects people who are starting projects withdrew from the market. At the same time, or roughly that time, you had all of a sudden old furniture stores start breaking apart furniture because the price, the profit margins were way too good to pass up. So they said, no, I could sell this couch or this uh, chair a year from or, no, there or these hundreds of chairs, probably more, much more volume a year from now, or I could capture these high profit margins. And the combination of people withdrawing from the market and also more supply flowing into the market those high prices i mean we had we had we had we had uh, uh, labor uh labor. lumber suddenly fell from 1700 down to about 300 uh in about six months and now it's now it's about at the price it was before the pandemic but um the it went from it went from an absolutely manic surge to to a, basically a crash but that's a good crash i mean that's that's supply and demand coming back into line that's mm -hmm. uh, bringing lumber out of the uh, out of the out of the woodwork, so to speak, and right. uh, people who were bidding up saying, you know, this is making the project I was going to do unprofitable. When 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 home builders began building uh, clauses into home building contracts, saying you may have to add an extra 10, 15, 20, 25 thousand dollars if the you know, to the price of a house if lumber keeps going up, that immediately affected uh, demand. Mm -hmm. And you know when the the prices of used shipping containers double, I mean one of the things it does is that Anybody who has a shipping container or owns a shipping container out there, all the, so, wherever it is sure. in the world, has an incentive to say, you know, maybe I can sell it. Maybe I can, you know, in effect, give it so it can help, uh, you know, bring some more goods to the U.S. Sure. There's there's many shipping containers, and that's something that that, that was discovered uh, 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 throughout the summer and fall of this year. There's many shipping containers out there which are holding supplies or they're pushed together in the back of someone's lot and they're still serviceable and many of those are being emptied out mm -hmm. and being brought to bear uh to help in the uh, in the in the uh, shipping uh imbroglio so yeah i mean at a high enough price things start materializing all over the place
things. Right. Maybe not enough, but it helps. And and one thing to on top of all of these uh, you know, stresses uh, sort of from from increases in demand, we've had a few things happen in the, the global shipping industry in this this past year to disrupt things, beginning with uh, uh, incidents in the Suez Canal, right? Yeah. So so what's interesting to me, and what I, what I find curious about this is that is that any one of the things that have happened individually would would not be a big deal, right? But but starting with lockdowns, everything that happened was not just additive, it was, as I used the term before, multiplicative. It made things 10 times worse. You have lockdowns, right? And then you have the ever given get stuck in the Suez Canal and that backed up a few hundred uh, ships. And then you had closures at ports like uh, Yantian and Ningbo in China, which pushed things back even further. And then of course, as containers and pallets start to disappear and that sort of thing, and then pallets and then of course the labor shortage um you have uh you, you have you have containers not being loaded onto trucks quickly enough and reduced space and then uh, uh a host of other factors um along with uh still i mean consumers still have a lot of money I mean, we're still yeah. at record uh we're, we're, we're still at nearly record levels on savings so there's a lot of consumptive capacity out there mm-hmm. um, a lot of discretionary uh, uh cash out there so to speak so i mean uh, all of these things have led to um a, uh, a huge, uh, a huge backup, uh, and it's not just that; it's other areas too. But um, it started really with the lockdowns. The lockdowns are sort of predicated or based upon a philosophy, implicit, but I think very real, that the economy, or that economies could happen nationwide, uh, worldwide. Um, the economies are like light switches, and you can turn them off and turn them back on at will. And I think one of the great takeaways, one of the things that I uh, think people should take away from this, is that. We are lulled, we as human beings, not just Americans, but certainly Americans, the rest of the world, are lulled into complacency by the reliability and responsiveness uh, of the modern economy. You know, I can order something today and it will literally be at my house tomorrow. And that makes that makes the economy seem like this massive, intricate machine. But in fact, it's a very delicate and precarious sort of dance, which is very easily upended. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and uh, that's... Um, that, that, that's that's my other point is that is that any one of these things whether it's the drought in taiwan that made it harder to to or that slowed down ship production because it's a very water intensive process or whether the closure of ningbo which occurred uh, the chinese port which occurred because one person a 34 year old tested positive for the coronavirus uh and was even asymptomatic any one of those things would have been a hiccup but on top of the lockdowns of last year and then each other they became tremendous bottlenecks, which you are, which it will take some time to get out from under. Oh, politicians often like like to at least pretend that they can solve all of society's problems, and and some right. people have <laughs> uh, not just politicians, but you know m- many experts have, have been uh, making calls that some of the, the the federal government presumably uh, we should have to should get more involved in, in managing our our broken supply chains and. You know, toward this end, uh, President Biden appointed a port envoy, sometimes called a point, port czar, uh, back in August. Czar. And um, you know, some people are saying we need a supply chain czar as well. Um, in trying to unpack this, so there, I think there's a first thing to say is like, is, are our supply chains really broken in, in this case, or are they doing the best? Are they doing a, a good job? Yeah, so I would first say supply chains aren't broken, but they were broken. 
someone broke them. And it was the political response to so many, uh, to, 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 the, uh, to, the, to the virus and that sort of thing. And it's also monetary policy where you have lots of money chasing uh, capital intensive uh, uh, processes and, 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 and raw materials and goods. And you have fiscal stimulus. There's a whole bunch of things that fed into this, but virtually all of them come from government policy. And about this uh, port czar, the one thing I'd want to add is I know that there's two things that have been done, two major things that have been done by the Biden administration so far. One is to find uh, ships that are off, uh, that are waiting to offload off the host, uh, off, off coasts and ports, um, $100 per container, which can be like $1.2 million a day for the large Panamax shippers, which it's hard for me to understand how finding them a million dollars a day makes things move along any quicker. And first of all, it seems to be punishing them for the effects of government policy. The second thing is uh, the Biden administration uh, has said that they, are, they they reached an agreement at several major ports, uh, those that tend to be off the coast of California in particular, um, to expand working hours. But there's a reason why ports were only open from nine to five. It's because through collective bargaining, many of those port workers make 150 dollars to $180,000 a year in overtime, which could be time and a half, will we'll make the prices skyrocket even more. Mm -hmm. So between uh, uh, sort of parasitically leeching off of uh, uh, the, the situation they created via, via fines on waiting uh, vessels off the coast and between helping out their collective bargaining uh, 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 pals, all they've done is help themselves. They've only made the costs associated with the bottlenecks vastly higher, mm -hmm. which will eventually be passed on to consumers too, by the way. But I mean, uh I believe the statistics show that the ports this year are going to handle more goods than, than last year. So, I mean, it, it's not like it's not like we have shortages because all of a sudden nothing's coming through the ports. The things are broken down. We have shortages because we're we're expand we're exceeding the capacity that, that, that we have sure. here. But so, so the, the bigger the first half of the year. Oh, you know, I, I think a bigger question about like uh, the government trying to get involved and manage supply chains is just how incredibly complex these are. And and you had a, a great story in one of the pieces you've written about this, about how it is that the lumber shortage is affecting uh, inner uh, ocean shipping now. And, and I think that was a, a great, uh, you know, explain that for us because it's a great indication of just how complicated and how complex these things are. Sure. So something I didn't know uh, when I wrote the timber article is that one of the major uses of timber uh, is in pallets and pallets go into you, there's many goods that you can't just put into a shipping container. You need pallets on the bottom between to, to make that, uh, you know, two, two to five or three to five inch space between the bottom of the of the shipping container and the uh, and, and, and whatever's being shipped. Um, so when the lumber crisis or when the lumber prices uh, uh, began to rise because of shortages, there were that many less pallets. So at one point, even if you had shipping containers, you might not have the pallets to put in there. But what's, what's great about it is that uh, although wood is for reasons which I'm sure I don't fully understand superior, you can use, uh, one can use plastic pallets. By the way, there's a plastic shortage too, but uh, plastic pallets have been used in some cases. And also in many cases, private industry has risen to the challenge um, Amazon just last year and sort of what was a, a sort of a, a, a very uh, uncanny sort of a hunch they may have had or just pure luck. They purchased a fleet of, uh, of planes uh, to, to transport goods, uh, changes the economics of shipping, but at least it allows stuff to get where it is. Um, Walmart and Home Depot, a bunch of other firms have actually chartered uh, ships 
Um, some of them have chartered large ships. Some have chartered uh, smaller ships to get things into smaller and more shallow ports. So um, the, the resourcefulness of private industry has come has come to fore and is addressing a lot of this uh, in ways that the federal government uh, probably wouldn't or couldn't uh, come to. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many facets to it that are that are basically impossible to anticipate. And that complexity is just going to you know, overwhelm it, especially if one person or, or one government agency is supposed to be in overseeing all of these incredibly complex uh, supply chains. I, I, I think they would easily get overwhelmed. And, you know, I think one of the, the scary things to my mind about like more government oversight of supply chains is the government oversight usually also requires the government approval for changes because once you get a plan in place, the, the worst thing that's going to happen is somebody deviating from that plan without permission. And you know, you, you've mentioned some of these adjustments that, that uh, firms are making, like you know, Home Depot and Walmart chartering uh, ships. And you know, I just wonder how long it would take for a government bureaucrat to uh, agree, like, okay, you can go ahead and charter a, a ship uh, to, to try to alleviate these shortages. Uh, yep. More time, more costs, all that. Yeah. Well, well thanks for very much for, for coming on and, and explaining some of these uh, events for us and showing how they're, they're all related and all part of like a, a fundamental economic challenge that we face. And thank you all for joining us. Join us next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. 